now. Do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi, hello to Boo Boo, hello to Scooby Doo, Barney and Bradley. Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? If anybody doesn't know what happened, Trump suggested that theoretically you could maybe inject disinfectants into the bloodstream to fight the coronavirus. And Mr. Larry Hogan, who is the governor of Maryland, who is a Republican, but is not happy with Trump's solution for coronavirus, was like, we're getting hundreds of phone calls every day from people asking if they can shoot bleach directly into their veins. And um, Bill Cassidy, who is a Republican senator from Louisiana, said the following. He's also a doctor, mind you. He said the following. The president speaks in such a way people are not going to inject themselves. And when I hear this kind of conversation around that, I think to myself, we should be talking about how do we use data to guide where we can reopen the economy, not about what the president said on Lysol, because really, no one is going to inject themselves with Lysol. That's what he told uh, John King from CNN. That's a very generous assumption, I would say, at this point. Yeah, I feel like that's assuming people haven't already taken leave of their senses. And given the ample amounts of evidence in the week's prior to this. That train has left the station. Time for logic is over. I remember when this when this thing first happened, started unfurling itself across the continent and going to the supermarket to look for supplies for the end of days. And people had even cleared out the Windex. And I'm like, Windex doesn't kill shit. You can get streak-free shine all over your fucking fresh <laughs> vegetables. I I don't think people know what's going on. Our grasp on epidemiology at like a ground level in the West is tenuous at best because it's been so long since we've had like a major life altering pandemic that we have absolutely no idea how to proceed with anything. And then people are just compounding it with their stupidity and selfishness at every turn. Yeah. I mean, they do have it, I guess, contained to some degree here, but like, man, get real fucking sick of this lockdown. Uh, so I read this thing with a guy who is a stroke specialist at this hospital in Long Island and he was called in on his day off. Because they said, like, there are, like, 12 people in the emergency room with strokes. And he was like, oh. So he gets there, and these are all young, healthy people in their 30s and 40s who have gone into a type of stroke that is only really seen in people over the age of 75. <laughs> and this is, all these people tested positive for coronavirus. There's also this thing called COVID toes so they're starting to see in kids who get it which is like your toes turning blue. And I think it's because young people are having blood clotting issues specific to, I don't know if it's the composition of blood when you're younger or just the way your circulation works, but yeah. Well, this episode will come out two weeks from now, so by then we could all be without a foot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if we do lose any of our limbs, uh, it will give us something in common with today's subject. Oh, skillful. So I guess we should get into it then. Everybody around him loved the man. He was that sort of person. When you looked at what he had done, if it wasn't a big laugh, you had a big smile on your face. 
Okay, hello everybody. Welcome to What's in the Basket podcast. I am Amelia, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Tiff. Hello. And Candace. Hello. So yes, today we're talking about a subject that is very near and dear to my heart, particularly, and I'm finally breaking my streak of uh, covering movies exclusively from the 80s to talk about a film that is older than anything we've covered before and is silent because I like to make Todd's life a living hell. <laughs> I do use clips from movies as a massive crutch in my editing process, so this will be fun. <laughs> we'll branch out, leave our comfort zone. I say hour, I'm referring to myself exclusively. We all love a challenge, even though Tip has already just had a challenge with our um, last ep being the longest episode ever. It was real long. We're really making up for lost time. Yeah. Uh, and not doing long form episodes, but today is another long form episode. So anyway, I will get into it. It has long been the perception of the general public that most successful and admired of all silent comedians is a certain tramp with an insufferable penchant for sentimentality. Some might have an inkling of the other greatly admired stone face, accompanied by daring pratfalls and awe-inspiring thrills. There is, however, one face that is decidedly absent from all these recollections of the past. His impact on comedy and on film history as a whole is undeniable, and yet many people would be hard-pressed to know his name, let alone recall his contributions to film history. It is ironic, then, that this final comic, often touted as the third genius, holds claim over one of the most recognisable and enduring images from all of silent film. The image of a bespectacled man dangling perilously from the hands of a clock high above the busy streets of Los Angeles is the climax of arguably the most heart-stopping, thrilling sequences in film history. So who is this man and what is this film? I would say he was one of the, one of the most charismatic innovators of film comedy in the early days. The current generation of young people, the 20-year-olds, don't know anything about Harold Lloyd. You, you say something about Harold Lloyd and they say, who? It always uh, disturbs me a little if someone says, who was Harold Lloyd? <laughs> because, my God, he was a, a giant figure. Well, this man is Harold Lloyd, and he was born on the 4th of April, 420, blaze it, 1893, in Burchard, Nebraska, to a milliner and a sewing machine salesman. For all of his young life, he lived on very modest means, and his father had the nickname Foxy due to his constant vacillation between various money-making schemes. Uh, when Harold talks about his childhood, he often likes it to that of Tom Sawyer. Did Harold have any friends who went on a raft and discovered that racism is bad? I mean, I'm sure he did. Uh, they're in the documentary. He has a friend who says, Harold was really great at magic tricks. <laughs> and he'd try and sell you magic tricks and then he would never end up telling you the trick after you paid him. He would uh, sell you a trick. You want to buy them. Tell you what, uh, but he'd never explain it to you. So I'm like, cool, he's a shyster. Likening his upbringing to that of Tom Sawyer, Harold lived a hand-to-mouth existence for much of his young life, getting by on his natural-born charm and ingenuity, which saw him taking on many odd jobs and performing magic for children and adults alike. And although Harold reflected quite fondly on these years, um, many of his childhood memories sort of had this veneer of, like, rose-tinted glasses over them whenever he speaks about them. But his childhood was one of constant upheaval. His father, a constant disappointment, often 
often uprooted the family each time one of his schemes ended in failure. This continual frustrations led to his parents' eventual divorce in 1910. Where did Harold grow up primarily? He's from the Midwest, right? Uh, Nebraska. Him and Robert Taylor then, two great Nebraskans. Well, you see, he, he lived there like until he was like 13, not in Burchard specifically, but around there. And then he moved to um, San Diego. That's a big change. The change really happened on the turn of a dime, literally. He and his father flipped a coin to see which direction they would go. His father wanted to go east and Harold wanted to go west and Harold won, so they went west. So that's how they ended up in San Diego. It was around sort of the age of 13 that Harold kind of discovered his love for theatre. He acted in like a range of plays as a child actor and was really looking to become a dramatic actor. I started when I was about 12 years old. In fact, I did everything in the theatre from usher, candy butcher, property man, assistant stage manager, all I went on to the whole gamut. But all of this gave you tremendous experience. All through high school, he acted in community plays and he never did end up graduating from high school because, you know, we don't need no education. Um, and because of this, I guess, theatrical background, Harold, like many other actors of his day, had a certain disdain for film, thinking that it would never have the same pathos as the stage. But eventually, pride loses and economic necessity leads you to start taking bit parts in films. So the very first screen appearance of Harold Lloyd is in a Thomas Edison picture, The Old Monk's Tale, where he appears in Red Face, the very first of many bit parts Harold would play in racial makeup of some kind, which is... <laughs> Bit of a Rock Hudson vibe there. Yeah. And again, he was living paycheck to paycheck. There's a story in one of the books that I read that said that he lived on six sugar donuts until his next part. <laughs> Which, I mean, surely sugar donuts, you could find something more nutritious for the same amount of sugar donuts, but you know. Maybe he just really liked sugar donuts. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe. I don't know if he's in LA at this point, but a steady donut diet is fundamental to our character as a city. So He wasn't at LA when he did the Edison picture. He's in New York still? No, in San Diego. Oh. But he had moved very shortly after to Los Angeles, after yet another failure on his father's part. Honestly, it seems like his dad, bit of a fucking idiot. So in Los Angeles, Harold began taking parts in Universal Film Manufacturing Company pictures for $3 a day. In order to get these parts, Harold used his intimate knowledge of stage makeup to disguise himself in order to sneak past the studio guard, which is an experience he would later immortalize in film in the 1918 one-reeler Hey There. But as Harold tells it, this is a quote from him, I happen to observe that anyone with makeup on got by the old gateman without any difficulty. He saw they were working, they had makeup on, so he permitted them to pass through. So I bought some makeup and went around the corner and slapped on a kind of cursory makeup and stuck my cap, I used to wear a cap in those days, <laughs> under my coat and ambled through the gate without any trouble. But I made it a point coming out to talk to the old gateman. So I had to wear makeup the first three days in order to get through the gate. After that, he got acquainted with me and then I could go through because he felt I belonged. Homer? Who is Homer? My name is Guy Incognito. So he's already, all through his childhood life, a lot of people talk about his kind of charm and he's really quite a go-getting kind of attitude he had to. I guess you could say some of it also comes from his father and being kind of a 
shyster, but he really is ingenious in whatever he's trying to do, whether it's selling people magic tricks without actually telling them the trick, or whether he's sneaking into the Universal lot to get bit parts for $3 a day. That's just funny that you that you mentioned that, because I heard a, a really similar story. I heard, I saw it in a, a I don't know him, but Earl Holloman talked about kind of the same <laughs> idea, where he found out that you could get onto, I think it was the Paramount lot, by pretending that you were going to go get a haircut from the barber there and yeah that's how he would get into the studio and then he ended up getting cast in a picture i think it was a it was a tab hunter movie where he was playing a marine and his hair was too long so they actually sent him to the studio barber and he gave him a horrible <laughs> horrible haircut oh no so karma but that seems to have been yeah a fairly common way for young boys to slip past the gate guards with being like i need them to go fix my fucked up face there is actually pictures that exist of all of harold's like elaborate makeup that he did like there's him as an old man and him as a woman and all of these um really quite extravagant disguises that he would flash around to casting directors and whatever and they'd just be like, this is a bit much. Chill out. And then they're like, just slap on some blackface. You're fine. But anyway, it would be here on the Universal lot where Harold would meet the future comedy mogul Hal Roach who would have an indelible impact on the development of Harold Lloyd comedy star. Um, And for those of you who don't know, Hal Roach was a highly influential figure in the comedy world uh, responsible for numerous successful film comedies like Our Gang and Laurel and Hardy. And it was during a strike that Harold and Hal left Universal over a pay dispute and Hal set up his own production company, the Roland Film Company. Finally, I got to the point where I own my own company. And the first person that I engaged was Harold Lloyd for a very simple reason. He was the best hardworking actor I ever saw. Um, and his first comedy character was called Willie Work. And I'm pretty sure it's either this character or his next character that's credited as Winkle in the UK. <laughs> yeah, Winkle. Winkle. Uh, and <laughs> I have no earthly knowledge as to why that is. I just don't know why they called him Winkle. I remember we looked into this many, many years ago. And there was some suggestion that that was a fairly, like, that was a thing that they did, was renaming actors, screen personalities for the UK audience. And I'm just like, why couldn't the British handle people having their own names? Uh, So the Willy Work character, um, like many sort of comedy characters of the 1910s, was really uh, an imitation of Chaplin's tramp character. Grotesques, as they were known, were part and parcel with silent comedy, though none would really have the lasting impact of Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton. They would argue that Keaton's not necessarily a grotesque in the traditional sense, but Willie Work did not really find any success and was never sold into distribution, with Harold believing the original nitrates were burnt for their metallic silver. And it was after this failure that Harold and Hal parted ways. Now, this would be like the first of many times they would break up. It's always over money. Harold would constantly leave because he thought he was not getting paid enough, um, which was true because the dramatic actors were being paid $10 a day, whereas Harold was getting paid 5 So I thought I was important as Roy, and so uh, I said to him, i got to have $10 a day. He said, but Harold, we can't afford it. I said, but you're paying Roy. Well, he says he won't work for any less. So I quit too. <laughs> and that's how I went to Senate. So he was not about that. And I think us, as all keen unionists, would be on the side of Harold. 
It was after this dispute that Harold moved to Keystone um, under the control of Max Senate, and it was there that Harold really learned how to do the pratfalls and that kind of really slapsticky comedy that he's not necessarily known for, but it is part of his gag comedy. And he was there alongside one of the original titans of silent comedy, Roscoe Arbuckle. Eventually, though... Lloyd did find his way back to Roach. It was really off again, on again with them. Now Hal was a director at Pathé, and it would be here that they'd create another character that was iterative of Chaplin in Lonesome Luke. Finally got a character that we call Lonesome Luke, and that was really a, a kind of a half-shoot imitation of Chaplin. Although I tried to be different, I put on tight clothes, where Charlie had loose ones, and I divided my mustache, and that went on for a long time and uh, was quite successful, but not really good. They're really fast-paced, rough knockabout comedies that were like wall-to-wall gags. That was all it was about. They grew in popularity exponentially because people really loved the amount of action that happened and he produced them at a much faster rate than Chaplin did. And a lot of distributors were really clamoring for that content that was similar to Chaplin's that Chaplin just simply was not producing enough of. But for all their success, Harold like knew that he wasn't really going to get anywhere with a comedy character that was an imitation. And he always felt that there was limitations and that it really wasn't going to go beyond the kind of comedy that it was. With all that said and done, in 1917, Harold filmed the last Lonesome Luke picture and it was the last one of 70 Lonesome Luke pictures. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Yeah. I think they started filming in 1915, so that's a two-year period. So you can see already Harold is a lot more productive than Charlie Chaplin and he would be for the rest of his career and would be as commercially successful. So in 1917, he's really getting fed up with the Lonesome Lick character. It's in this year that he makes a critical change to his comedy character. Now, both Hal and Harold take credit for the creation of this character. Uh, In the documentary, The Third Genius, Hal Roach really says it was all his idea. I'm like, cool, um, Harold's not alive to defend himself, (laughs) so I'm going to take this with a grain of salt. This actor that played the drum for us came on the set with a pair of glasses without any lenses in them, but it completely changes his entire character. So the next day I had him bring me a whole bunch of of rims and uh, we tried them on Harold and uh, and of course that's when he increased his value five or six hundred percent. Lloyd remembered it differently. That wasn't Roach's idea, that was purely my own idea. Roach didn't want me to change in it. And when I finally decided and told him I was going to quit, And they said, all right, we don't know just what crazy idea or how you want to do this, Lloyd. We're going to dump it into your lap. And uh, they said, Lloyd, go ahead. But essentially the idea for this character was an average person wearing a pair of horn rim glasses. So obviously it's a shift away from that kind of grotesque character that a lot of 
other comics of the time leaned on. And Harold himself kind of saw the character as an earnest, ordinary boy-next-door type who, despite his glasses and somewhat studious appearance, was a go-getter, confident and ready to tackle the modern world head-on. So in Harold's own words, he says, While my character was not a comic character in appearance, I donned the glasses to make him instantly recognisable. They were not just a gimmick. They were a trademark, the same as Chaplin's Derby and Kane, but my glasses gave character besides. Someone with glasses is generally thought to be studious and an erudite person to a degree, a kind of person who doesn't fight or engage in violence. But I did. So my glasses belied my appearance. The audience could put me in a situation in their mind, but I could be just the opposite to what was supposed. So the glasses not only had an identifying characteristic, but also a comedy characteristic. So he was appropriating nerd culture (laughs) for his own benefit. Hmm. He was. But for all of his rationalization of the new direction of his character, the development on screen did not happen overnight. Uh, In the first appearance of the now-titled Glass character, the 1917 film Over the Fence, the character still borrowed heavily from the rowdy antics of Lonesome Luke. So he just, he was essentially Lonesome Luke, but with glasses. (laughs) I mean, Harold makes a big deal about this change. It's not seen on film for ages. However, this shift in appearance did enable Harold Harold to eventually shift from that more aggressive character to a much more gentle cleverer and kinder character and the result was now the romances became a lot more believable and I'd argue probably that Harold out of let's call them the big three Chaplin Keaton and Harold Lloyd Harold was probably always the most successful at building up that romance and pursuing that romance I don't think Buster Keaton's romances functioned on a higher level than anything other than comedy and I don't think Chaplin should be given credit for anything. So, um, <laughs> Buster has a certain nastiness about women. The women in Keaton films tend to be so dumb as to be a real plot obstacle. And yeah, they're an object more than the character. Yeah, Buster had, I think, a lot of issues with women that never got resolved. Yeah, namely the one he was fucking married to. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and while obviously in the in the shorts, definitely, Harold, a lot of the time, women are just comedy objects for him to play off. We do see in his later films sort of a lot more going into the development of the relationship between Harold and his female characters, which I definitely think he was the most successful at doing. I would say of the big three, Harold is the only one who had ever described as having made romantic comedies. Yeah, and there's there's a lot for Harold's leading ladies to do. It's not purely a supporting role. They play an active role in the narrative. I think especially in his movies with, with B.B. Daniels. Yeah, absolutely. With his new character, Harold found extraordinary success that they weren't really expecting in the beginning. Audiences responded really well, um, and by the end of 1919, Harold had produced 80 one-reelers, and his popularity rivaled that of Chaplin and Arbuckle. Um, And of course, he was supported by a talented team of directors, technical directors, editors, gagmen, and writers. Um, And at this point, he wasn't known for being a filmmaker, per se, Um, He did have a lot of sway over the direction that did happen. Um, Lots of people have anecdotally said that he was a real perfectionist and that what he said would happen would happen. But that said, he did have a team of gag men that helped him work out his films. He wasn't someone like Buster Keaton who just innately knew what to do. 
Critically, the members of his cast helped him develop a lot of the Glass character and really helped him shine, most notably, as mentioned, B.B. Daniels, who had joined Roland at 15 years old to be Harold's leading lady. She and Harold were always really close and had fallen in love, which was a bit iffy on the age thing. And I think definitely her presence in the Harold Lloyd comedies is definitely more than an object. She really has presence. She really has this kind of charisma that I cannot see in any of, you know, Buster Keaton's females. But there's also this sense that no matter what kind of crazy antics Harold got up to, BB could handle it. She could play just as hard as anyone else in his movies. Eventually, however, BB would leave Roland for Cecil B. DeMille and Paramount. She really wanted to pursue dramatic roles and she also wanted to kind of spur Harold into settling down. He had argued that they were too young to marry. I mean, and he was probably right in saying that because BB was 19 years old at this point, but he said, no, we don't get married. So she left and eventually married Ben Lyon, who we've all expressed some thoughts on. Uh, <laughs> however, Harold and Beebe would remain friends. Friends forever. BFFs. It would be in 1919, after the departure of BB Daniels, that the Glass character One Reelers would graduate into Two Reelers, um, affording Harold a lot more time to actually flesh out the character and add a level of complexity into his films that he had not been able to do previously. These films would go on to make Harold a lot of money. As per his 1919 contract, Harold would receive half of Roland's profits for his comedies. Um, soon he was one of the wealthiest actors in Hollywood. So this is even before he's made his first feature film. He was raking it in. Hope he paid his taxes. Harold strikes me as a tax evader. Selling people magic tricks and then not telling them the magic trick is the high school equivalent of not paying your taxes. But you see, though, he did a lot of stuff with the Shriners, which, you know, on one level could be like, this is a secret society, they don't want to pay tax, but he did primarily a lot of charity work. He was primarily interested in the Shriners. Because he likes when they do the parades with the little tiny cars <laughs> and they ride around. That's what he wanted to do. He just wanted to do that little soapbox derby 4th of July bullshit. That's all that was. So as a filmmaker and producer, Harold relied heavily on preview screenings for all of his films. He was determined to produce as perfect a product as he could. And he often used audience responses to determine what scenes needed to be cut and what needed to be reshot. An example of this can be seen in the development of the film I Do from 1921. It was initially a three-reeler. An audience preview showed that there was little to no engagement with the first reel, which was a sequence that depicted Harold and his girl eloping. Um, and the decision was made to cut it and then they reshot the opening and then it emerged to be one of Harold's most successful two-reel comedies. Um, and Harold is often credited with being one of the first filmmakers to use previewing to the extent that he did. This reliance on preview screenings would also accidentally lead Lloyd into creating his first feature film. Initially intended to be a two-reeler, the film A Sailor Made Man from 1921 was previewed to audiences at four reels in length proving to have overshot just a little bit, all four reels previewed to great reception. And Harold just decided to roll with it and release it as a complete picture. And so that was his first feature film. How do you accidentally film two extra reels? 
<laughs> That's so much. <laughs> um, apparently he was like that, though. He just filmed so much. <laughs> With a lot of other silent comics of the time, they would just film one take and that would be it. Harold was not like that and he did not operate in that kind of fast way. He really did things until they were perfect, so they obviously had a lot of coverage but it's kind of like us and this podcast, just really stumbling into three-hour territory. Yeah, I was going to say. With our last episode. <laughs> and upon recalling the film, Harold said, I played a rich young fellow who thought he could have and could do anything he wanted. Through a sequence of incidents, he enlists in the Navy and, much against his will, goes to sea. His shipmates make a man out of him before they get through. So you can see that the central idea was a real one, that hard knocks will bring out a man's metal if he has any. That's essentially the plot of A Sailor Made Man. And with this film, it was the first gag-focused feature-length comedy ever made. Um, And it beat out Chaplin, Arbuckle and Buster Keaton all to the respective punch. Um, While all of them had appeared in some form of feature film before, Chaplin's film debut being Max and its Tilly Punctured Romance in 1914, this was not his own film. The Kid would not be released until after A Sailor Made Man in 1921. Arbuckle's features had either been dramas or light comedies up until this point. And at this point in time, Keaton had had no creative control over his features. His own first feature film, The Three Ages, would not be released until 1923. So Harold really beat them all, as he did in a lot of ways, <laughs> most namely financially. Um, the success of A Sailor Made Man led Harold to make his next feature, Grandma's Boy. And it was very similar in the development in that it was intended to be a two-reeler that grew into a feature film. It did draw heavily from The Kid. Harold kind of insisted that instead of being gag-led like A Sailor Made Man was, that this would be character-led. However, when it was initially previewed, and this is where Harold really filled the bite of his system, it failed to thrill the audience. And after its preview, Hal Roach insisted that Harold add more gags. So Harold and his director, Fred Newmeyer went back and added comedy business, as it was called, and it was all edited seamlessly into the existing footage, um, so it did not feel contrived. So for all the disappointment of the initial screening, the reception of Grandma's Boy upon its release in 1922 was overwhelmingly positive, and it was one of Harold's most successful films that would go on to influence Chaplin's The Pilgrim, Buster Keaton's Our Hospitality, and later The General, with its genteel sensibilities and balance between plot, character, and gag. So the following feature film he made was Dr. Jack, uh, which was another gag-focused comedy, and there is little to no focus on character in this picture, and it is considered one of Harold's lesser accomplishments. However, it does feature a great chase through a supposedly haunted house. But now we've talked about all of those. We can talk about the film that we're actually meant to talk about, which is 1923's Safety Last. Hell yeah. <laughs> Finally, we made it. What's the one with the monkey? Is Sailor Made Man the one with the monkey? Yes, yeah, I Okay, I couldn't Man remember. The, the monkey. Yeah, well, I think that movie had really strong characterizations on the part of the monkey. I think the monkey gives a really good performance. I'm not kidding. I think the monkey, the relationship between Harold and the monkey and Sailor Made Man is infinitely more compelling than the relationship between Chaplin and Jackie Coogan in The Kid. I'm willing <laughs> to make that statement. I stand by it. I'm when it grabs willing his nose, to agree with you. When the monkey grabs Harold's nose, it kind of <laughs> a little bit and Harold I think goes cross-eyed or something. 
that's a good, that's a good bit. So Safety Last is undoubtedly Harold's longest and most complex thrill picture, as he called it. Previous to this, Harold and Hal had explored the high and dizzy film genre. So high and dizzy is very much what it sounds like. It's sequences in movies that happened at great height with astounding and nail-biting stunts that left characters and audiences feeling dizzy. Uh, so this style of thematic filmmaking would help Hal and Harold produce a wonderful array of thrill pictures like Look Out Below, High and Dizzy, and Never Weaken, which would see Harold performing a wide array of terrifying stunts on window ledges, on hanging construction beams, and on the outside of buildings. Um, these films were all wildly popular and would cement Harold's place as a consummate gag comedian, but this style of filmmaking would ultimately reach its final form in Safety Last. Uh, so Safety Last follows Harold, credited as the boy, a country boy moving from his country town, Great Bend, to the big city with a mind of making it good. Three bucks, two bags, one me. Say, where does a young prostitute get started in this town? Uh, he leaves behind his sweetheart, the girl, or Mildred Davis, who he would marry after the completion of this film, with the promise that he'll come back and marry her once he's made a success of himself. Once he arrives in the city, he is only able to secure a job as a low-paid sales clerk in an apartment store, though it isn't what he's telling his girl back home. He tells her he's doing great, that he's moving up the company ladder, and that he will soon send for her to get married. Things all come to a head when Mildred decides to pay him a surprise visit. With nothing but his quick thinking, Harold is able to make it appear that he is in fact the manager of the department store, not the lowly clerk, and Mildred leaves, thinking, oh well, he's doing great, we can get married. And Harold's like, ugh. <laughs> Record scratch. Harold dangling off a building, yep, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Harried Harold's last hope to make it big comes when he overhears the store manager say that he'll give $1,000 to anyone who can draw a big crowd to the store. Harold jumps at the opportunity and volunteers a performance by his steeplejack roommate to climb the side of the department store building. And his roommate is Bill Struther. Bill accepts on the condition that he gets half of the fee. However, on the day of the climb, Bill gets into trouble with the law and is unable to make the climb. So responsibility falls on Harold himself. From here, the film launches into some of the most heart-stopping and thrilling moments of all the silent cinema. As Harold attempts to climb the building, he encounters a wide array of obstacles, from a flock of pigeons to a net and swinging windows, Harold tackles them all head on, quite literally in the case of some of them. <laughs> and it is here that we really see the power of the glass character, because unlike other comics of his time, Harold does not take on the challenge with a brave or stony face. Harold is visibly terrified and at times downright exasperated with the experience. There are so many wonderful comedy moments that he expresses purely on his face, whether he's recovering from being attacked by a pigeon or whether he's trying to push off the concerns of some admonishing old ladies. There is something deeply relatable and quite modern about his performance. And the film's climax is Harold's arrival at the clock face and it is here we are given our iconic image mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Uh, so he makes it to the clock face and is dangling off the clock face and this is obviously the key image from this film. He eventually makes it to the top of the building into the safety of Mildred's arms and that's the film. On the initial inspiration for this film, Harold recalled, 
I was in Los Angeles walking up 7th Street and I saw a tremendous crowd gathered around a building, the Brockman Building. Upon inquiring, I found out that a human spider was going to scale the side of that building. That naturally intrigues anyone. So I stayed around for a while and pretty soon a rather young fellow came out and was introduced and there was a certain amount of commercialism attached to it at first. Without too much ado, he started at the bottom of the building and started to climb up the side of this building. Well, it had a terrific impact on me that when he got about to the third or fourth floor I couldn't watch him anymore. My heart was in my throat and so I started walking on up the street. I walked about a block up the street but of course I kept looking back all the time to see if he was still there. Finally I went around the corner. Silly as it is I stood around the corner and kept looking to see how he was progressing. I just couldn't believe that he could make that whole climb but he did. So I went back, went into the building, got up onto the roof and met the young man. Gave gave him my address and told him to come out and visit Hal Roach and myself. His name was Bill Struther. So Bill Struther played the friend, the pal, in Safety Last, and he would be instrumental in Harold and Hal's plans for their next feature. I love that Harold is witnessing this and he's just like, peace out, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) He's just like, how much? I I really think that in uh, their little bit of Safety Last where he's watching Bill perform the climb is exactly how he was watching this, where he's like idly picking apart the bouquet of the guy he's standing next to like worrying I love that gag situation I really think that's how he was when he was watching this just being like oh fuck this no thank you yeah but they all worked hard to devise a story that used the human fly as a central plot device and constructed a feature around this with all of Harold's films and particularly Hal Ridge's films there was not much in the way of a script per se. A lot of the action was devised on very loose terms. Uh, In the case of Safety Last, the film's press book claimed that there was no written script at all. Title writer Harley M. Walker wrote his text titles after the first rough cut, and this was the closest thing to a script that they uh, had, which is, I mean, seat of the pants kind of stuff. Hal uh, explained it as, we figured out the climb and shot that first running it as a test in the projection room in front of the entire studio and office force. We knew we had something exciting for the public. Only when that was finished did we go back and work out why Harold left his small town and how the story would lead up to the great finish we believed we had. So they'd filmed the entire climb first before creating any of the backstory about why there was a climb, about, you know, why Harold was there, what Harold was doing, why he was climbing this building, and previewed that first before they came up with anything else, which is very um, a roundabout way of making a film. So in terms of the climb, uh, it is an incredible feat of filmmaking. During his life, Harold always kept the exact details of how they filmed it a secret because he believed that revealing them would destroy people's enjoyment of the film. I mean, I guess it's the same way he felt about magic. (laughs) But I think in this day and age, in the age of CGI, it's probably a little bit more impressive than it would have been previously. The fact that they could achieve this effect in such an ingenious way when they didn't have much at their disposal. I was saying yesterday when we watched it that, you know, it's still very effective. I've seen this movie a billion times and every time it's like I get sweaty palms, I get very nervous. I remember C.B. DeMille, I think you, a great producer, he saw a picture we did called Safety Last and he came out and he says, you know, Harold, if I hadn't known that you were 
just a few feet off the ground, he said, you'd have had me really scared. And I said, well, CB, I said, I got news for you. We were up there. And I start telling him how we did it. And finally he says, look at the palms of my hand. He says, they're all damp. Yo. His palms spaghetti, knees weak, arms spaghetti. There's vomit on his sweater spaghetti. Mom spaghetti, he's nervous. But on the surface, he looks calm spaghetti. They drop palms, but he keeps on spaghetti. You really feel the height for sure, even knowing that he's not really, you know, in danger to that extent. Yeah, it, it's really effective, I think. Um, obviously, at the time, there was little in the way of special effects. And those scant few that did exist, mirrors, double exposure, glass shots or miniatures, were not really suited to this particular shot making, I guess. Like, you can't really use a miniature Harold climbing up a building. <laughs> Could have used a puppet. <gasps> <laughs> Could have used a puppet. Imagine. Imagine. <laughs> Instead, uh, an ingenious method of trick photography was used to give the illusion of height. Uh, so what they did was build sets on the top of buildings in Los Angeles. I think there was three key sets for the final climb. And Lloyd and his crew of talented filmmakers used forced perspective to make it seem like Harold was multiple stories in the air rather than just one or two. We built a set on top of the 14-story building that would be maybe two and a half stories in height. Right on the edge, facing in toward the, the roof of the building. Now when they photographed it, they photographed it in such an angle that it looked like it was on the opposite side of the street. And you could see all that traffic underneath you. Where if Harold did fall, or I did fall, doing some things that were a little more dangerous that you wouldn't want to do up at 14 stories, uh, we'd only fall maybe 15, 16 feet. I would have pads down there in case he did fall. Uh, Harold remembered it like this. We started the film with a one-story building and built our set right on the edge of the real building's roof. We built it so that we could put platforms out and constructed the scaffolding on the side so that the cameraman could be up there and shoot down. In those days, we didn't want to divulge how we performed our stunts. We didn't want to give away any of our techniques for the fear of making the public disillusioned with the thrill of it all. And while Harold may not have actually been scaling the outside of a building as dangerously as it appears in the actual film, uh, it was not without its dangers. So for a lot of the stunts, Harold was wearing specially designed shoes for wire walkers, which is something that Tiff pointed out yesterday. She said, I would not be climbing a building in those shoes, <laughs> but there was specifically designed okay. for that kind of activity. Still not as versatile as Healy's. Storm Healy's. <laughs> and Harold, who was notoriously terrified of heights, remarked, who wants to fall three stories? The platform had no railings around it because that interfered with the camera shooting downward. If anything happened and you had to jump or fall to this platform, you would have to make sure and fall flat because if you bounced, that would be the end. Um, so essentially what they've done is built like one or two stories on top of this building and then had just mattresses on the roof of the building as like the safety net. And Harold loved telling this story of the day the crew performed an experiment to test whether it was going to be safe to film on. Um, and he said, they dropped a dummy onto one of the platforms and it bounced off and down <laughs> into the street. I must have been crazy to do this picture. The funny part is whenever I'd done one of those sequences, I was scared to death the first couple of days. In fact, we accomplished practically nothing. 
I was scared to death to hardly move around up there, but after you were up there a while, then you got to another state of getting so much confidence that you had an overconfidence. You'd do a certain number of hazardous things that you had no right to do. I'd walk out clear beyond the platform sometimes. So I guess it's like exposure therapy. Yeah. yeah. You just get used to it at some point. I was saying to Tiff when we were watching it, I was like, I would be out as soon as the birds appeared. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be like, fuck this. I don't want one to touch a bird because they're disgusting. But like two, heights are scary. And I don't want to fall off a set onto a mattress and then bounce off that mattress onto the ground. Yeah. I wouldn't have fucking done it. No way in hell. <laughs> And Mildred Davis didn't want to fucking do it either. <laughs> um, she was similarly afflicted with a crippling fear of heights and insisted that during the closing scene where she's on top of the roof waiting to catch Harold as he swings on the flagpole's rope, that two members of the crew be there laying down out of the sight of camera to hold her ankles so she wouldn't go tumbling over the edge. And if you look at this, it's like waist high, the <laughs> barrier. You've got to be really gunning to fall off to like go over the edge, but but, like, she was very, very scared. So there were some dangers involved. While he wasn't exactly scaling the side of a whole building, he was, I guess, in some level of danger. So much so that despite his athleticism and skill for pratfalling, Harold was unable to complete all of the stunts on his own. Uh, while he performed the majority, there were several factors that prevented him from doing them all. Uh, the first of which being his insurance. The insurance company would simply not allow Harold to perform all of the stunts because any injury to the star would shut down production and cripple the company and it's just something that they weren't willing to risk. Um, this would be something that he'd encounter a lot. Obviously Buster Keaton was not under the same contractual obligations. <laughs> Buster out there snap and he got damn neck. <laughs> Buster was ready to die at any moment, though. He was fucking, like, he did not give a shit. The fact that Harold had the capacity for fear is they're very different people. Buster had no. They are, ex they, uh, they are very different people. But the other reason, which we've been building up to, is that for climbing, you need two complete hands. <laughs> something that Harold did not have. I purposefully skipped over it before so we could get into it here. But Harold was missing a significant part of his right hand. He was missing his thumb and his first finger on his right hand and part of his palm. And he lost this part of his hand uh, during the filming of a picture called Haunted Spooks in 1920. It was filmed in 1919, but it was released in 1920. And in the film, Harold is trying to kill himself in a, a number of ways um, and fails. And it was during the filming of this when the unthinkable happened. On August 24, 1919, Harold was posing for publicity photos for Weitzel Studios and he picked up a fake bomb from a nearby prop table with the intention of using it, using the fuse on this bomb to light his cigarette. Unbeknownst to Harold, the bomb was not as fake as he assumed it to be. <laughs> and it was as he moved the bomb away from his face to say that it wasn't going to make a good picture, uh, the bomb exploded in his hand. Then I realized that it wouldn't make a good picture. So the only thing that saved my life was that I was going to say, it's no good now. So as I said, it, and as I lowered it here, the bomb went off, went right straight up and blew a big hole about that big in the ceiling. Then all bedlam broke loose. Everybody was running around here, call the, call the hospital, call the ambulance, call the doctor, everything else. 
And now he, the pain has just now finally settling in. And he was still standing in the same marks where the, still was, where the bomb went off. And he grabbed his wrist. The thumb was gone. The first finger here was dangling, hanging right down in the front, swinging around. And he looked at it, and you could see the look of terror that came over his face. He just actually hit his face now, a registering shock that we were all registered before at the explosion. He lingered near death for about four days because of his burns. And then after that, had severe reactions to the antiseptics they used to try and prevent gangrene. Really can't catch a fucking break. And during the eight months it took him to recover, Harold's primary concern was whether or not he would lose his right eye and whether or not he would ever be able to get back in front of a camera. Uh, he got a bit depressed uh, after the accident and he was really worried that he would have to give it all up like this is before he made any of his feature films and he was sort of at the height of his sort of one two reel of success and he was like well fuck it's all over and he was like 26 years old but what turned it around for him was he was walking past a theater showing one of his films and he saw the audience's responses to him and they were all enjoying it and he was like oh, i guess i guess i can't give it up I was like, man, it would take more than that for me. <laughs> he needed to continue making absurd boatloads of cash to buy yes. more weird <laughs> shit. That's exclusively, I think he was like, oh, I'm going to buy a shrunken head. You know, Harold strikes me as the kind of person who buys things like that. So the true extent of Harold's injuries were kept a closely guarded secret for all of his life, and it was never something that he really discussed at great depth publicly. Instead, his injury was concealed through the use of a specially designed prosthetic and glove and it was designed to give the appearance of a full hand with some movement. Funnily enough the idea for the special custom made glove was given to Hal and Harold by a former glove salesman turned film producer Samuel Goldwyn. Ah! <laughs> My boy! <laughs> um, I saw that and I was like is that the same? Is that the same Samuel Goldwyn as the one that I'm thinking of? And it is. So. Oh my God, Goldwyn was like Goldwyn was like, oh, I got, I got just the thing for you. Like, you know, I got you. It's like the episode when Kramer is gonna um, be the front for Morty Seinfeld's uh, old raincoats, the executive raincoats that he's got in that garage in Florida. It's the exact same situation. He was like, oh man, <laughs> gloves. I know gloves. He just opened up his fucking, like, trench coat and was just like, what do you want? <laughs> and, like, showed all these <laughs> gloves. Goldwyn probably gave him that glove and then was hoping that he would join his studio because of the glove. That would be a very Goldwyn totally. thing to do. He'd think that that was the bait and that was going to cement their friendship forever. <laughs> and then it just wouldn't happen because that's weird. But that's the assumption that Goldwyn <laughs> would make. Because <laughs> he just wanted to have friends. He just wanted friends so bad. It's just a shame he wasn't that likable. Anyway, um... <laughs> So they did have some range of movement in this glove. Uh, the middle and the forefinger of the glove were stitched together so they would move together, but the thumb would always be stationary. And you can kind of see it in films, particularly in this film. There's a scene where Harold is writing a letter, one of his many letters that he writes to Mildred, and he insists in holding the pen in his right hand uh, instead of just using his left hand because, I mean, the devil's in that hand, so we can't use that hand. 
Obviously, there are instances in his other films where he uses hand doubles, which is really funny because Harold was actually really freckly, and you can tell when it's his hands and when it's not because his hands are covered in freckles. <laughs> yeah, so he wore this specially designed glove and prosthesis, and the leather glove was stretched tightly over his hand and was held in, in place with a rubber garter and elastic bands to keep it on while he was doing all of his stunts. Um, it was then covered in makeup. Sounds sweaty. It sounds really sweaty. Yeah, that sounds like a nightmare. Um, yeah, obviously you can see it in films, but it's not really the most notable thing. No, and especially because at the time, back then... They didn't have rewind and freeze frame. <laughs> they have you saw that in a theater, the and you're like, "Hmm, hand looks weird," and then just kind of move on. Where you think about it every day, <laughs> yeah. and it consumes your whole being because you can't confirm that Harold Lloyd has a fucked up hand. Trying to get your peep show of Harold Lloyd's fucked up hands. <laughs> like, <laughs> Goldman was probably like, "I got an idea. We could sell <laughs> some glamour shots of the claw, <laughs> those little stereoscopic card things. You know, that changes when you when you held it at different angles. It's like glove, no glove, glove, no glove, mangled mass. One of those little pens where the, like clothes come off the lady, but it's just the glove <laughs> the <up>. floating. <laughs> That's a really good idea. <laughs> Harold Lloyd hand floaty pen. Somebody call Suzanne Lloyd. Tell her we have an idea. We've got an idea and it's a corker. I'm trying to find uh, when Debbie Reynolds, when her estate went up for auction, one of the items in the auction was Harold's prosthetic glove, but I can't find out how much it went for. I really want to know. Who would buy it is my question. Well, Debbie bought it at some point, so. I feel like he would have... It would have been given to her. And by who? I don't know. But like, it's kind of like a cursed monkey hand. It is a cursed monkey hand. Not even kind of like it is. Is what it is. It is. Have you ever, did you see, when you were in LA, did you see Harold's handprints at Grandma's Chinese? Because um, you can tell that he's got the glove on. The indentation isn't as deep as it is on his other hand. <laughs> so it's kind of just like, eh. <laughs> so clearly, because Harold only possessed one and a half hands, he could not do as many of the stunts as he might have liked. Instead, Bill Struther was the stand-in for the long shots of the building climb. And there's a few of them in there where it's, like, shot, like, down the building. And also um, there's a couple of scenes where it's not Struther, but it's not Harold either, where he's on the ledge kind of falling off. And you can kind of tell it's not Harold, but it's a stuntman that they got in because the insurance company would not allow Harold to do that. Uh, and the building, the long shots of Strother climbing the building was filmed on the International Bank building in Los Angeles on September 17th, 1922, um, with four cameras under the direction of Hal Roach. That said, even with all of the limitations, Harold did the majority of stunts in whatever way he could, and he's enthralling while he does it. Even during the filming, people were awestruck, with Hal Roach remarking, when people on the street found out we were shooting scenes with Harold Lloyd, sometimes we nearly had riots with the crowds as they gathered to watch. But everyone would stop breathless as the cameras turned during action. When we cut the camera, people applauded. Which would be fucking crazy to see them filming this. Like, just on the roof of a building, just like, oh, that's Harold Lloyd <laughs> climbing that building on top of that building. He hung on to the hands of the clock, I can never forget that, for long periods of time. And they would be shooting a certain sequence and you hear them say cut and there was no relief Harold would still hang there and he could I remember he could put his toes in the bricks you know to relieve you know the total pressure Bill Struther became after he retired from climbing buildings um 
he moved to Virginia and he saw an ad in a newspaper in Richmond, Virginia, for the Miller and Rhodes department store. And he went in there trying to pitch his idea for a show and they were not interested. But what they thought was, they were like, this man looks like Santa Claus. And Bill Struther became the nation's highest paid department store Santa. He made $1,000 a week in 1951 playing Santa. Jesus. Well, that's definitely better than what I thought you were going to say, like that he, I don't know, went postal and like had to be committed. You know, that's generally how these stories go from Hollywood, where they just end in some kind of horrible misery. So good for him. Yeah, it could have very easily gone the other way. So, son, what would you like for Christmas, huh? Did you fuck my mom? What? Did you fuck my mom? What do you mean? I, uh... Did you fuck my mom, Santa Claus? Did you fuck my mom? No. Did you fuck her? No. Did you fuck my fucking mom? Did you fuck my mom, Santa? So, yeah, that's kind of how they filmed that. There's obviously a hint of the trick photography that would later be used for the climb scene throughout the rest of the movie. Um, in the beginning, there's like a trick scene where it looks like Harold's about to be executed, but he's in fact on a train platform. There's gags littered throughout, you know, some smaller gags like with Harold and his pal hiding from their landlady by hanging themselves up as coats. The entire scene at the beginning of the movie where Harold is trying to get to work and can't, and he's, what is it? It's like a towel delivery yeah. truck. A delivery van for towels. Towels. Yeah. Uh, he's essentially kidnapped by this van and driven away from work. And he has to, you know, get back to work by any means necessary to go back and clock in at the right time. I definitely took issue with the towel delivery van. I have never seen anything like that. <laughs> back then, you know, they didn't have Uber Eats or... <laughs> You know, Blue Apron or any of that shit. So you had to get your towels I delivered. Assume, I mean, I mean, it's a department store, so I assume the towels were for the bathrooms in the department store. I prefer to think that there is just, um, people are still doing that Victorian-style laundry service thing, and Harold is not sitting on clean towels, but instead a bunch of nasty towels. <laughs> Probably with pneumonic well, that's plague. What I'm thinking like they're the towels that go in the bathroom, so they're taken out and washed and delivered back. That's what what I was thinking. But like, how much cool would there be for such a service? Well, when you think about it, okay, here I would think that bathrooms in places like department stores were probably much busier at this point in time because there are very very limited public facilities. You know, we don't really have that public bathroom culture that we have now so people would be running into department stores to piss <laughs> yeah and i um there is that that fact that uh, it was actually quite the invention of the department store with selfridges was quite liberating for women to be able to pee in public yeah because it was the first place to have female toilets speaking of liberation the neighborhood in which this is filmed in downtown la was also the home to most of the Turkish baths within Southern California and uh, became the site of several very highly publicized sting operations and raids by the LAPD in the early years of the 20th century. So did Harold partake in such things? Is that where the towels were coming from? Is that where the... <laughs> you see, Tiff knows where I'm going with this. So <laughs> you may continue now. 
Thanks for that. Well, you should have brought up um, the towels. It made me think about all these things. I mean, I was just commenting on a scene that happened in the movie that I'm talking about. It's not my fault your brain's like a fucking jumble sale. <laughs> anyway, so now we'll move on to the reception of this film. Obviously, it was extremely well received upon its release because we still think about it and talk about it now. It cost $120,000 to make. In today's money, that's $1.8 million. And it grossed $1.5 million back then. And today that's $24 million. So that's a 580% return on investment. And the intensity of the thrills proved even too much for audiences of the 1920s to handle, with stories of people hiding their eyes or even fainting in the aisles while watching parts of the climb. Apparently it was not uncommon to keep an ambulance on standby outside theatres when they were showing the films. Which, you know, I'm in Safety Last, there was an assumption that, like, women just fainted all the time. And I'm glad we're past that period of just people fainting at the drop of a hat. Imagine thinking that you're going to go see a snuff film, like you're <laughs> going to see Harold Lloyd die in real time. <laughs> Yeah. Hal Roach is just like, print it. I mean, I feel like Hal Roach would do Hal that. Hal Roach would do that. But... I mean, the fact that they um, finished Haunted Spooks where he nearly did fucking die and released it. I was going to say, I wonder how many movies there are where you actually get to see somebody die. There's, there's, I know when Viola Dana's husband crashed his plane and then they use that footage and you see the plane crash. Then there's, you know, all the people drowning in Ben-Hur, allegedly. <laughs> But I can't really think of many other movies where you would actually see somebody meet their end on screen. So I think it's funny that people were like, oh, is he going to make it? Yeah, he made it. He's all right. (laughs) It's all okay. The reviewers were also, I guess, impressed. Um, The Variety Review said, this picture could open, say, in a city the size of Buffalo, Sunday afternoon, and before six o'clock that evening, everybody in town will have heard of it. That's the kind of comedy it is. Safety laughs will make all the nation laugh. Lloyd looks like a picture staple in comedy line for all time. And in the trade paper, the Motion Picture Herald, an exhibitor in Portland, Oregon, wrote, They are tearing the arms off the chairs and laughing so loudly the organist can't hear himself play. And then in Tiff's favourite, Photoplay, they predicted the film's future. This new Harold Lloyd fast will become a classic of its kind, or we will miss our guess. For it is the bespectacled comedian's best effort to date. This is easily one of the big comedies of the year. It is seven reels in length, but it speeds by with the rapidity of a corking two-reeler. And finally, I think the biggest endorsement came from an ailing President Warren G. Harding, who was urged by his physicians to have the picture screened at the White House as a remedy. His thank you letters to Hal Roach and Harold Lloyd with the same thing. Loved it! Exclamation mark. I wonder if this is before or after Teapot Dome and now he knows he's not going to be reelected, and theoretically he might go to jail and Harold's the only thing that he's living for. <laughs> I think that'd be really funny. Well, it says ailing, so he wasn't doing good. Just watching Safety Last as a remedy for an illness <laughs> as far as presidents go is um, preferable to drinking bleach. He had an illness in his funny bone, okay? And only Harold <laughs> could cure it. It's better than, you know, Woodrow Wilson's favorite movie, which was Birth of a Nation. <laughs> So. I was going to say, was it Birth of a Nation? Yeah, Woodrow Wilson loved Birth, Birth of, a of a Nation. He had a whole reception. I think they've screened it in the Rose Garden. Son of a bitch. But it's okay. We can't. I can't say anything mean about Woodrow Wilson since he's dead. That means he was a good person. Just like we've never said anything mean about Ronald Reagan in our entire podcast So history. true. Ronald Reagan's favorite movie also might have been Birth of a Nation. I don't know. Can anyone <laughs> show me? <laughs> show me the proof. 
Want to see the receipts? Um, okay. Though for all its success, it did give Howard a reputation for thrill comedy that he felt limited his legacy. They've almost got me down as a stunt uh, comedian because uh, the films that uh, I made that had thrills like that in had a real impact and they remember those but actually out of nearly 300 films that I made somewhere between 250 and 300 I only made five that had thrills like that that's a small amount he resented the fact that he'd become known for one type of comedy when he believed his performances were far more nuanced and varied than could be put in a single box. Though he conceded that he only got this reputation because he'd done it better than anyone else. And, and that's true. I think, in my mind, there's absolutely no film in the same space that rivals it. Even though it did have an influence on other filmmakers, like Chaplin borrowing the thrill format for his films The Gold Rush, The Circus and Modern Times, and Keaton borrows from it for our hospitalities. No one kind of did it on the same scale or with the same success as Harold. And with its success, it really cemented Harold as a major figure in film comedy, um, far more than he had ever been previously. With his first feature films, they, you know, were just longer versions of his two, three reelers that he'd made before that. Uh, this one kind of is a bold new direction that would essentially give him the power and ability to set up his own studio away from Hal Roach and give him his independence from Hal Roach, which I think we'd all want. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, um, the image of Harold dangling from the cock, cock, <laughs> the cock face. Hmm. <laughs> Far out. <laughs> I was doing so, like, I wasn't doing great. I was stumbling over a lot of words, but that's the worst <laughs> one that I've ever done. <laughs> Uh, 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 so as I mentioned at the top of the episode, Cockface sounds Cockface sounds like the title of like a Harry Langdon movie. Cockface, <laughs> Cockface, got a hyphen between cock and face. Yeah, but they mean like the poultry. He plays a farmhand. Yeah, and he falls into a chicken coop. Cockface. It's like the cockface. It's like the sap head. It's you know, <laughs> like, it's just an old timey kind of insult. Uh, <laughs> yes. So, as mentioned at the top of the episode, the image of Harold dangling from the clock face is indelibly linked to Safety Last that even the most oblique references inevitably recall the film simply by association. So there's many instances of references to this particular scene and this film throughout film history. Um, I'll go through a few. The 39 Steps from 1978 features Richard Hannay, Robert Powell, hanging from the minute hand of the clock face of Big Ben. The 1983 martial arts film Project A with Jackie Chan also paid homage to Lloyd by falling from a clock tower. Quite an extensive reference is paid to Harold Lloyd in the film Back to the Future. In the beginning of the film, you can see there's a clock in, you know, the raft of clocks that Doc Brown has in his studio. Um, one of them is actually Harold Lloyd dangling from the clock. And later on in the film, the whole film hinges on the clock scene um, with lightning sending Marty McFly back to the future. And then the 1991 comedy film Oscar paid a direct homage to the scene, recreating it on its poster where the main character, played by Sylvester Stallone, hangs from a clock. 
which we watched the trailer for just yesterday. And boy, doesn't that look like a disaster. It looks absolutely terrible. Uh, it looks unenjoyable. It looks like a chore. So we're going to have to watch it. We're going to have to watch it. I feel like Harold, I don't know how he would have felt about Sylvester Stallone, to be honest. Do we think he would have been pro-Sly or anti-Sly? That's really hard to tell. I think he would have appreciated how much money Sly's movies made at the box office. I think Harold would have had an appreciation for a really great commercial movie star. I think the extended fan scene in Daylight um, <laughs> oh, bears yeah. some Absolutely. influence, some Harold influence there. Yeah, it's, yeah, I would agree with that. Funny that you should mention Sly because, coincidentally, something I didn't mention in the last episode, but um, part of the reason why Kenneth Nelson from The Boys in the Band said that he left uh, America to move to London and to do theater there was that um, America, paraphrasing, had basically become a brain-dead country where somebody like Sylvester Stallone could be considered an actor. So, you know, when worlds That's collide, sad. it's sad. It's not actually sad. It's, sad. it's, it's, it's not It's sad. a little sad. It's Sly, to me, it's I don't feel as... It's sad for America. I don't, it is sad for America. I don't feel as bad for Sly as I feel for, like, somebody like John Travolta because I've never actually watched a Sylvester Stallone movie and been like, God, this is a good performance. And the same way you watch, like, you know, Saturday Night Fever, you know, Blowout or something, and you're like, oh, Travolta can really act sometimes. You never have that mo that moment with Sylvester Stallone because he, he can't act. No, with Sylvester Stallone, it's more like I'm leaning towards the screen to be like, what the fuck is he saying? How is this man an actor? The man needs captions. The man needs, like, to not be on film anymore. <laughs> How's Sly handling the pandemic? He's hanging out with his fountain pen collection. You know he collects fountain pens? Can he even hold them in his hand? <laughs> <laughs> he can hold them better than Harold could. You walk right into that one. And they call me There is no doubt that the film functions on a multitude of levels and has stood the test of time. The thrills and spills are still awe-inspiring today, and there really is no experience like seeing it for the first time. Uh, as a piece of film, it is a wonderful example of Lloyd's perfect marriage of story, character, and comedy. And its star and creator, Harold Lloyd, remains one of the most influential and seminal filmmakers of the silent era. So how has a man who has been so successful and so admired, been forgotten. This is something I'll explore later in future episodes because I don't want to do all of that research now. And um, <laughs> there's other Harold films I want to talk about. So look forward to that in the future. But what I will do is leave on a quote from a Harold Lloyd superfan. Hedge your bets. Who, who is it? Is it you? Billy Crystal. It's not me. <laughs> It's not Billy Crystal. Is it Jack Lemmon? When at first you didn't say Billy, it's not Billy Crystal. I was like, is it Billy Crystal? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's not. And it isn't Jack Lemmon either. Okay. It's the biggest queen of them all. Elton John? No. <laughs> Paul Lind? No. It's Orson Welles. Ah! <laughs> um, <laughs> Harold Lloyd, he's surely the most underrated comedian of them all. The intellectuals don't like the Harold Lloyd character, that middle-class, middle-American, all-American college boy. There's no obvious poetry to it. And they miss that incredibly technical brilliance. The construction of Safety Last, for instance. I saw it again only a few years ago. As a piece of comic architecture is impeccable. He was almost entirely his own gag man. Really, a writer who acted, if you know what I mean. Someday he'll get his proper place, which is very high. I got to know Lloyd through magic. We were both members of the same magical fraternity. Oh my god. What a lovely man. I just like... It's like the ambling quote. It's like, Orson, what are you doing? 102, take two. 
Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson, inspired by that same French excellence. It's fermented in the bottle, and like the best French champagne, it's vintage dated. I was lucky enough to see this at the Orpheum Theater a couple of years ago in downtown LA, which is right near where it was shot. It's like down the street from some of the buildings that were used. And it's something that I think needs to, to really be appreciated. I think it needs to be seen on a big screen. But I think more than that, to see it in a silent movie palace, I think is really important. It's kind of like the first time I saw a Busby Berkeley movie on the big screen, which coincidentally was also at the Orpheum. The scale of it is so monumental that when you see the stunts in this film projected on a screen, I don't even know how tall the Orpheum screen is, five stories high probably? Um, it's it's like a really transcendent, like spiritual experience. And I have so much admiration for Harold's craftsmanship because when you see a film in that context, every flaw is writ large. Everything is is it's glaring, and there's there's not a single thing wrong with this movie. The visual effects are so smooth and so seamless, and the comedy is so finely tuned it doesn't it doesn't drag it doesn't um it, it barely lets you breathe in the best possible way and i think when you compare it against other narrative films of 1923 you can see that harold had an intuitive grasp of long format media in a way that really outclassed his peers both in the realm of comedy and in the realm of drama because there's very few dramas from that early juncture of you know the long six plus reelers that are as enduringly winning as something like this. This movie, I think, it, it feels so mature and so far, I, I hate saying ahead of its time, because that's not, I don't like that phrasing, and I think it devalues things, but Harold was just head and shoulders above everybody else. I think it's good that there is this renewed interest in him and in his work, but at the same time, I think it's it's kind of mind-boggling to me that people could see something like this or something like The Freshman, which I love very dearly, and not think that he's in a league all of his own in terms of filmmaking, independent of genre and independent of style. Yeah. In future, I'll talk about why he is not as remembered as other filmmakers of the time. But it's like, I think with Harold, people often assume that he is forgotten because he's, his character was very of the time, that it was very 20s go-getter, you know. Nothing can stop him, nothing can keep him down and didn't really resonate beyond that time. But I don't think that's necessarily a good assessment. I don't think it's fair on Harold because when you watch something like Safety Last, it's truly modern in a sense that you, like all of his expressions when he's climbing the tower, some of them, yep, they're in that style of 20s, you know, silent film acting, but they're still like very deeply relatable and the gags in it still resonate today and it's still thrilling. And um, you're so focused and involved on the story and in the action that's happening that you don't notice any of the camera tricks that are happening. Because if you do really look, you can see quite clearly when they switch from building to building because the background changes. 
It's a completely different street. It's a completely different set. But you don't notice that at all. You're focused solely on Harold and his action and his emotions that, you know, everything else falls away, which I think, again, comes back to that, the fact that he was such a perfectionist and they did he did have this charm and this ability to really understand his craft and to take pride in doing the best job that he could, which, you know, it makes me extremely angry that, he's often lumped in as the the third one, you know, he's that third wheel of silent comics when I think that what he did was so decidedly different from what Chaplin ever did. And it just, yeah, it's not, I guess, a valid assessment to just say, oh, you know, he's just one of those other silent comics. It's like, well, you know, he did invent romantic comedy as a genre entirely. I was going to say, I think that also, too, the movies feel so modern in part because I think we feel the pressures of urban living more acutely than we have at probably any other point in the last century. And I think these themes that recur in Harold's movie, which are uncomfortable living arrangements and, you know, dodging the landlady you owe rent to, and all all these concepts, I think, resonate with us, especially in a time like this, where everyone is kind of yearning to Ariana Grande voice break free. And I think think people, people love Buster because there's something, like there's like that existential dread, you know, at the core of Buster's comedy. And people like Chaplin for whatever reasons they like Chaplin that I've never really understood. <laughs> but Harold invented hustle culture, first of all. Harold was the original uh, rise and grind, <laughs> let's get this bread king's Instagram motivator. And I think what Orson said is right. I think he's dismissed or he was dismissed in the past in part because that person, that farm boy relocating to the city and hoping to make good is not, that's not a narrative that we have in the culture anymore. I think that went out with, you know, hair and midnight cowboy and shit. That's not a thing that we really discuss anymore. But I think it's, it feels really pertinent because I think it's just a cyclical thing. I I don't know. I, I, I feel like that narrative still works. And I think Harold understood intuitively that that was an archetype that would always be present somehow in the culture, especially with how the urbanization of America. I don't know. I I think Harold just tapped into a lot of the zeitgeist, maybe even not entirely consciously. I've always had kind of the reverse assessment of Harold Lloyd in terms of him being like some kind of antiquated product of his time or whatever. It's always been the opposite for me where I think, you know, comedy is probably the best place to start if you haven't seen much silent film because it's got that kind of universal quality that made it like a global success and that translates to, you know, sort of translating across time. And Harold in particular for me is like, he really, I think, is accessible to 21st century audiences who are willing to give him a chance because he kind of embodies like all the most modern impulses of the 20s for me like he's very relatable and fresh in that way even now it's i think he's more like 20th century than 1920s that go-getter character waned industry-wide anyone whose whose film persona was adjacent to that got kind of written off with the coming of the talkies well i guess also the depression yeah can't really go get during a depression that's that's so true i think um i think you see it i I was gonna liken it to, to billy haynes who had kind of uh, a really similar character. The Billy Haynes character is always, you know, trying to spin a quick buck and comes from nothing and blah, 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 and is, you know, moves to the city in search of something better. But audiences just didn't resonate with it anymore, I think, once the Depression hit and then the cultural the, the, the cultural narrative changes too much. I, I 
it's it's kind of sad because it's something I enjoy so much about film in the 20s is that kind of invocation of the American dream which vanishes until the end of the 30s but I think it's particularly sad with Harold because these movies are so good and every Harold movie's got a gem in it especially if it's got a monkey yeah. involved yeah I think I think for me what really resonates most about Harold's films is that he you can tell that he worked really hard on them because he wasn't a comedian in the same sense that Buster was or Chaplin was or Fatty Arbuckle or any of those were. He was an actor and he had intended to be a dramatic actor. Harold Lloyd was not a comedian, but he was the best actor to act the part of a comedian of any person I ever saw. He worked very, very hard, probably harder than any of the others, to be funny and to stay funny. And I think that shows through in his work, the fact that he did rely so heavily on preview screenings and the fact that he did, you know, respond to the audience and was very aware of what they were thinking and feeling about his work and also just working double time on every single scene that he had to shoot. It really speaks volumes to the kind of filmmaker that he was and... It just makes me really mad that, you know, people fucking love Chaplin and don't even know who Harold is. So He really got film as a populist medium. I think he's, he's so inevitably compared to Buster. And the thing about Buster is that Buster is so clearly, I think, not receptive to or understanding a public reaction to his film. I think that's why Buster was so consistently heartbroken when people didn't understand what he was trying to say. And I think that's why Buster took his career failure so personally. He wasn't able to to shrug it off because he doesn't have that resilience of, I'm going to say it, Harold's got that ronk, let's put on a show thing about him. (laughs) Because he understands that that film is also a communication between audience and performer. You know, it's it's a dialogue between the two. And sometimes, you know, Buster is doing a really beautiful, you know, Shakespearean soliloquy, but that is not, but there's not any audience engagement there. Whereas, like you said, Harold, everything is oriented towards the viewer and the viewer's reaction and captivating the viewer. It's it's very methodical and it's very well thought out and it's very logical and painstakingly developed in a way that because it's not totally off the cuff the way that some of the other comedians were, I think people, people, people oftentimes don't have, I think, respect for people who have to think about being funny. I think that's kind of a flaw that we have as a culture. And Harold's still got more talent in one of his missing fingers than everyone else has in their own body. You know, I don't care how effortless other comedians of the era might seem. I, I would still rather watch Harold because Harold to me feels he feels Harold's a movie star. Harold understands what a movie is. And I think a lot of these other performers, particularly the ones who came out of kind of that more like slapdash, like Hal Roach or Senate studio approach, I don't think they were prepared for the the way that film developed into being something that was narratively driven. I think Harold coming from a theater background and being an intelligent person had that grounding in order to really make narrative art as opposed to just a, a string of gags. And, and mm. a lot of the silent comedians never moved past that because they were just too time bound you know, in, in a particular era, they came from a certain tradition that they didn't deviate from or they couldn't deviate from because they just didn't have it. Harold had it in spades. Harold's like Clara Bow. Same eyebrows. <laughs> um, so we're only focusing 
the very beginnings of Harold as a film star, but I think in my next dissertation, as this was, on Harold, it will be focusing primarily on, on the freshman and sort of that peak period of his career, whereas the third one will focus on Speedy and then his transition into talking films and his eventual career decline. Um, although we can't really call it a decline because he just sort of retired and hung out on his fucking mansion for the rest of his life. So, I mean, could have been worse. And then he was like, hey, Preston Surges, why don't we do a movie? And then Preston Surges was like, here you go. And then he puked into his hand and handed it to Harold. <laughs> and Harold was like, you know what? I'm retired again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. So, But in that, I'll talk more on um, Harold's own personal quirks and his weird fucking hobbies. Boy, he had some corkers, including uh, a fascination with Great Danes. So take that as a little teaser for whenever the fuck I do that episode, because it's not going to be next time. And um, I'm going to go back to the 80s with my next film, so you just have to deal with that. Well, anyway, that was that was my first delve into Harold Lloyd. Hope you all enjoy it. Didn't care if you didn't. Um, <laughs> We'll do more silent film in the future, too. Well, if we'll see how this turns up after TIFF ends, <laughs> you know, to be fair. We do have a list of silent films that we want to cover. Um, obviously, at some point, we're going to do some Buster Keaton films because we love him. Don't ask for Chaplin because it's not happening. Yeah, are we rating this film? Do we do that on... Oh, yeah, sure. Let's do it. How many Harold Lloyd prosthetics would you give this out of five fingers? Uh, I would give this five out of five fingers. Prosthetic fingers. Um, <laughs> More than Harold had. Okay. <laughs> how many prop bombs that are not actually props out of five would you give this film, Candace? I would give this five not actually prop bomb prop bombs out of five, Todd. Amelia, how many department store Santas would you give this film out of ten? I would give this ten department store Santas out of ten. Paid a thousand dollars a week. God, that's so much money. <laughs> Thanks for listening. As always, you can find us on social media at BasketPod on Instagram and Twitter. Please talk to us. Let us know you're there. You can rate and review us wherever you listen to this podcast. Um, again, tell us what you think. I don't know. I don't read it. <laughs> Tiff and Candace read it and then tell me all the good things. So, I mean, as always, wash your hands. Don't inject bleach into your veins. And we'll catch you next time for hopefully not another three-hour episode of What's in the Basket podcast. Bye. 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 <laughs>
at this time. No. Maybe later. Todd, you have to cut the bit earlier because I just realized that wasn't Hal Rich, Hal Roach who was sh- shitting aggressively. Pardon me. That was Max Sennett. So oh you're my God. <laughs> In my mind, they just became one person. Well, I did mention Max Sennett before, so you can, you can just... Yeah, Frankenstein it. Record a clean, a clean bite of Candace saying Max Sennett and then <laughs> <laughs> impose it over the top. Signed, little girl. Yeah, just do it that way. <laughs> You want to say anything more about Max Sennett's bowel movements? Well, now i got to think about it because I don't even remember if it was a toilet in the boardroom or if I'm completely misremembering that because it might not have been. They might have just been in his bathroom for some reason. But even so, he's not... Is he holding meetings in these bathrooms or what? I, you know, it's been a long time since I read Capra's book. Um, I might have to get back to you on that. He's a one-handed man. That could be another Bob Dylan song. He's got one hand. <laughs> one and a half. <laughs> he cannot grasp. Okay. <laughs> the ledge. <laughs> you're like, you're like, why don't you guys contribute something of interest? And I'm like, wouldn't it be fucked up <laughs> if Fatty Arbuckle had a WikiFeet page? <laughs> 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 That's my contribution for the night. Thank you. <laughs>